Welcome to the show, folks. In our last session, some scribes and Pharisees came all the way from Jerusalem to raise a fuss over Jesus' disciples not ceremonially washing their hands before they eat, which was a religious custom that didn't have any biblical basis to it. But it had become a tradition throughout the years, so Jesus straightened them up right quick and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? You guys like to order the obedience from people, but not obedience to the commandments of God, but rather to the commandments of men. Then he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes a man unclean, but what comes out of the mouth. Because what goes into the mouth goes straight to the digestive tract, but what comes out of the mouth comes straight from the heart. And it's the heart that comes all manner of sin. Jesus explained this further to his disciples when they were alone. Then after that, Jesus made his way to Tyre and Sidon, in which a Gentile woman showed up begging for the healing of her possessed daughter. Jesus did something that was really out of character for him. He ignored her. But after continued begging, he told her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was kind of a weird thing for him to say, folks, because even though that's true, he bent those rules before. One time he went out of his way to bend those rules. He made a detour trip to Sychar to save the woman at the well. But anyway, she threw herself down at his feet and begged him and said, Lord, please help me. Please, Lord. But Jesus said, it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, isn't that weird, folks? That's not Jesus' style. But what's even weirder is what she said in response. She said, yes, Lord, but even the little pups can eat the breadcrumbs that fall from their children's table. To which Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was cured at that very moment. For when she got home, she found her daughter thrown on the couch and the demon was gone. Isn't that a weird little story? Nobody to this day really knows what that's all about. Many believe that Jesus was specifically testing this woman's persistence of faith, which if that's true, she passed with flying colors. But I personally have the suspicion that what Jesus originally said to her was something that only she understood from her previous studies and quiet times alone with the Lord in prayer, so that this entire scenario is something that only she and the Lord fully understood. And the rest of us are merely external observers. Wondering what this is really all about. But anyway, that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, what happened next is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 31, and Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Matthew reports that Jesus went on from there and passed along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, then went up into the hills and kept sitting there. And a great multitude came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the dumb, and many others. And they put them down at his feet, and he cured them so that the crowd was amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. But what Matthew didn't report for us is a private healing that took place in the midst of this scenario. Mark tells us that some people brought to him a man who was deaf and had difficulty in speaking. And they begged Jesus to place his hand upon him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he thrust his fingers into the man's ears and spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed as he said, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak distinctly as he should. And Jesus admonished them sternly to tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were overwhelmingly astonished, saying, He's done everything excellently. And he even makes the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Now, folks, what makes this whole healing weird is that every other time up until now, Jesus merely spoke a word or the sick just touched the hem of his garment. What's all this about, folks? Jesus thrusting his fingers into the man's ears and spitting on his tongue. 
Couldn't have Jesus healed this guy without doing that? Obviously, he could have, but then that leads us to the question, why did he do it? Nobody knows. We all have conjectures. But the most likely reason is because this guy possibly didn't have any faith. Because first of all, we notice that this guy didn't approach Jesus himself. It was his friends who brought him, possibly against his better judgment. And it's just possible that what Jesus did wasn't on behalf of the blind and dumb man, but on behalf of his friends. Just a conjecture. This would also explain why Jesus, in the midst of public healing, would take this guy aside privately so that this weird procedure wouldn't be openly seen. Just a theory. Now, what happened next is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 to 39, and Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat at all. And I'm not willing to send them away hungry, lest they become exhausted and faint on the way. Some of them have come a long way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, folks, don't you just want to kick them in the butt for asking that? Wasn't it just two sessions ago that Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? They could have passed a cool test here, but no, Jesus is going to have to teach them this all over again. But you know what, folks? We can sit here in the comfort of our reading chairs and judge these guys for not showing any faith. But don't we do the same thing? I know I have. Philippians 4.19 says, God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Folks, that's a promise. The key phrase in that passage from Philippians is that those needs get met according to what? Not our abilities to meet them, not our riches, but they get met according to God's riches. How big do you suppose God's riches are? Pretty big. And he does this by Christ Jesus, meaning if you're in Christ, if you're in his will, then your needs are no longer your problem. They may concern you, you might be aware of them, but if you're in Christ, if you're in his will, then all of your needs belong to God. And you were given that promise in Philippians 4.19. But do we really behave like we believe that promise? Of course not. None of us do, but we should just like these disciples should, especially since it wasn't that long ago, folks, that Jesus fed 5,000 in an almost identical situation that's taking place here. But anyway, they said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus asked them, how many loaves of bread do you have? They replied, seven and a few small fish. Folks, this scenario is looking more and more similar as we continue, doesn't it? Seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces that were left over. And those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Okay, not much to comment on there, except that this is the second time Jesus has performed this kind of miracle. You know, it really does surprise me that Peter or somebody didn't go up to Jesus and say, Hey, Lord, are you going to do what you did last time? You know, something along those lines, but nope. And I find that interesting because our faith is usually on par with theirs in this instance, and that's unfortunate. But anyway, let's move on. So Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, what happened when he got there is recorded in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. Mark reports the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Matthew reports some Sadducees came with them. 
And that covers the entire political spectrum as far as religious leaders go, folks. The Pharisees were the conservatives and the Sadducees were the liberals. But anyway, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And you may not get it, folks, but by asking for a sign from heaven, that implies that he's not from heaven. That all the miracles he's been doing, they're signs, but they're not signs from heaven. Mark reports that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Matthew, the stenographer, recorded more of that conversation and reports that Jesus said, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. The old saying, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take warning. Same concept here. So Jesus reminds them of that and says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, folks, this is the second time Jesus has warned that this generation would not receive a sign except for the sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus brought it up for the first time and was a little more elaborate then. He told them that just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, the sign you'll get is when you see me up and walking around three days after you've put me to death and buried me. We're lucky to know what he's talking about because he was more elaborate then, but these guys here didn't get that luxury. You want a sign? The sign of Jonah is what you're going to get. Huh? That's all Jesus gave them. And that's how he left it, folks. Right then and there, Jesus left because of this. Matthew and Mark report that he went away and left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. And when they reached the other side, this is reported in Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 to 12, and Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. They realized that they were short of bread. Mark reports that they did have one loaf, but nothing more, so they commented on it. But catch this. Jesus is still stewing over what happened on the other side of the lake. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Isn't that something, folks? We don't think of Jesus, the Son of God, being occupied mentally about something. I don't know. Maybe it's because, unlike all of the other occasions, this last episode hit him between the eyes as soon as he hit shore. As soon as he got there, they began grilling him for proof. Give us a sign from heaven. This is the Son of God, the Father's gift to the world, and they greet him like prosecuting attorneys. That made Jesus so mad, he said, No sign shall be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And immediately he turned around, got back into the boat, and left. Kind of makes you wonder what he would have done there if he hadn't received that kind of reception. But traveling all the way back to the other side, the disciples have moved on in their conversation, apparently. They've got other concerns. They're worrying about the shortage of bread. They're probably saying out loud, where are we going to get more bread? But Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. They said among themselves, is it because we have no bread? And then Jesus went off on them for that, folks. He said, why are you saying it's because you have no bread? Do you still not understand, O you of little faith? Are your hearts that hard? Don't you see with your eyes and hear with your ears? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of leftovers did you take up? They said, Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many large baskets did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. Then how is it possible that you failed to understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But beware of the leaven, the ferment, the contamination of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't you understand? Mark reports he kept repeating over and over, Don't you understand? 
Matthew reports that then they discerned that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Folks, when I read stuff like this and think about how these 12 were handpicked by the Lord himself, it's very encouraging and sort of discouraging at the same time. It shows us how being a little slow to the punch is something that all of us are capable of. That's why in every prayer you ever pray, you should always ask for wisdom. Jesus himself is almost beside himself. Don't you get it? Come on, guys. What's the matter with you? Are you kidding me? Jesus twice has fed thousands with just a small number of loaves, and yet they're still worried about the next time. Yeah, he did it then, but what about the next time? Jesus is ready to move on to bigger and better lessons, but he has to keep coming back here to basics. Guys, I'm trying to warn you about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but I have to keep coming back here to first grade material because you still haven't figured out that what we have to eat is not an issue. Now, what happens next is only recorded by Mark, folks, in his chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. It says they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when Jesus had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Strange that he would ask that, folks. And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone in the village. Once again, folks, here we have somebody else who needed Jesus's help, but didn't come to him of his own accord. He was brought to Jesus by others. Now, that might possibly be because he was blind and needed help, but the blind man never made any request. It was the blind man's associates who begged Jesus to heal him. And you don't catch it in the English, but where it says that Jesus took the blind man by the hand, in the original Greek, it means he caught him by the hand, whatever that means. So with these subtle details, they imply this guy didn't have any faith in Jesus. That's number one. Secondly, he may have not even cared about being healed. It was his associates who did the begging, not the blind man. That's interesting. So all this put together might possibly explain why it almost seems as though it took Jesus two tries to heal him because of free will. Some people might say it's because of faith. That's part of it. But sometimes it's not just a matter of faith, but what a person wants. Do you want to be healed? Now, Jesus has warned people in the past not to spread news of their healing, but something about this case is a little different. He told them neither go into the town or tell this to anyone in the town. Which town, folks? Bethsaida. Why? Because of their lack of faith. They had already rejected Christ, so Bethsaida was to receive no more evidence. Hmm. Was this blind man from Bethsaida? Sounds like it. That's where they came from. That would certainly explain his lack of faith, his hardened heart. So if no one from Bethsaida is to receive any more evidence, then why did Jesus heal this guy at all? It was because of the faith of those who brought him. We could spend a lot of time studying this and barely scratch the surface because God will not violate free will, but he will answer the prayers of those who belong to him. So what happens when those prayers involve God violating the free will of those who've rejected him? That's an age-old debate that one could spend forever debating, but I think we're sort of getting a glimpse of this here. This blind man never asked Jesus to heal him but his associates did. So Jesus, when he healed him, he didn't just say a word like he usually does. 
he spit on his eyes and put his hands on him and then asked him, do you see anything? Which is really weird. It's possible that all this went down this way because there's a conflict between the blind man's free will, which isn't on board with this whole event, and the faith and free will of those who brought him. Their faith would have been enough to completely heal their own eyes if they had been blind and Jesus had touched them, but not his, because of free will. So all he could see were blurry images of men who looked like trees walking around, so Jesus, for lack of a better word, had to try again. And then it was successful. Was it successful because the blurry images increased his faith and softened his heart so that Jesus could finally heal him? Or was it the same principle from before, the faith of his associates? We don't know. The Bible only gives us the facts in this case. He came from Bethsaida, a village that Jesus had completely written off because of the hardness of their heart and their disbelief. The blind man never personally asked for Jesus to heal him, implying that he either didn't believe or didn't want it, for whatever reason. Now what happened next is a crucial point in the narrative, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 21. They report that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus was praying privately, but then he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, and others say that one of the ancient prophets has come back to life. Then Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. And he strictly charged them to tell this to no one. How come, folks? What's the big secret? Isn't that why he came? His disciples, specifically Peter, gets it. He gets who he really is, so why keep it a secret? It turns out that at this point in the story, there are a couple of good reasons. One is that Jesus doesn't want the truth of who he is to be based upon word of mouth. He said, she said. Same reason why he always silenced the demons when they began screaming, You're the son of the living God! Jesus wants people to figure that out the same way Peter figured it out. But another reason why Jesus wants to keep this quiet for now is because he doesn't want to reveal himself to Jerusalem as their coming king before the day he was prophesied to do so. Several times we'll find people here and there wanting to make him king, but he'll say, my hour has not yet come. Meaning that the hour he arranged to come, outside time before the foundation of the world, is an hour that's set. And now that he's inside linear time, he won't budge one moment before or after that prearranged hour. Pretty interesting. But anyway, Peter gets it. And Jesus said something to him about that, and only Matthew got it recorded for us. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Barjona means son of the dove, which is kind of neat because the scriptures always use the dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is a continuation, folks, of what Jesus said earlier in verse 44 of John chapter 6, when he said, No man is able to come to me unless the Father draws them to me. Does that mean the Father only draws certain people to Christ? No, it means when a person does come to Christ, it's because they're responding to what the Father has revealed to them. Nobody comes to Christ on their own, not even one. And Paul covered that exhaustively in Romans chapter 1. We covered it exhaustively too when we did our commentary on John chapter 6. So if this concept is new to you, go back and check that out. But anyway, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, folks, that last sentence is almost completely worthless in English. This is one of those cases where the English language does serious damage to the original text. The three words in that sentence that we're going to look at closely are Peter, Rock, and Church. Because those three words are not appropriate English translations, but rather transliterations of what's really there. We want to look at the words Peter, Rock, and Church. It's extremely important on so many levels because this verse, folks, is a foundational verse. It's also the very first place in the entire Bible that the word church appears. Now we're going to explore that word, but first let's look at the words Peter and then rock. Whenever Peter's name is mentioned, we sort of lose it in the English, but in the original Greek, it was Petros, not Peter. That's the English transliteration of the name Petros. And that transliteration isn't a problem for us until you get to this verse here, because the word Petros means a large piece of rock. We've come to think that it just means rock, so that when Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, we think he's saying that he's going to build his church on Peter, as though Peter will be the founding father of the church age. But that's not what Jesus said. It sounds like it in the English, but that's not what he said. In the Greek, Jesus said, I tell you, you are Petros, which means a large piece of rock. He said, You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. The word Petra means a huge, massive rock. The Amplified Translation compares it to like the Rock of Gibraltar. So there's a comparison of two rocks in Jesus' statement. Peter's name, Petros, which is a large piece of rock, and Petra, which isn't a piece of rock, but a complete, huge, massive rock. With these two types of rock, Jesus separates them with the words you and this. Jesus was pointing out an irony. You know, he was saying, you're Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church. What is the Petra, folks? The complete, huge, massive rock that Jesus himself will build his church on. All throughout the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, what is the Petra, the rock, a symbol of? Jesus Christ, not Peter, Jesus even in the Old Testament, if you don't believe me, look up 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where Paul tells you that. We've all heard that famous cliche, the rock of my salvation. What is that? Jesus. So what Jesus said in the original Greek, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus told him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now let's look at that word church. This is the very first time in the entire Bible that the word church appears. This is a new concept that's being introduced for the very first time by Jesus himself right here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. So now that we know this is the introduction of something new that Jesus himself is building, and since we know what the foundation is, let's see exactly what it is that Jesus is building. We're so familiar with the word church, we don't think to look into this, but imagine being Peter and the other disciples hearing this for the very first time. They didn't have the hindsight of 2,000 years. So let's look at this very carefully to see what Jesus actually said. The word that Jesus used for church in the original Greek was ecclesia. On this Petra, I will build my ecclesia. 
And if you get out your concordance, you'll find out that every single time the word church appears throughout the entire New Testament, the original Greek word was ecclesia. So what does the word ecclesia mean? Well, it turns out that the word ecclesia means assembly or congregation. In other words, a group of people. That's all it means. So all throughout the New Testament, when our English uses the word church, it means assembly. What we today call Paul's church letters. In our old English, it says, from Paul unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. It means from Paul unto the assembly of God, which is at Corinth. When it says from Paul unto the church of the Thessalonians, it means from Paul unto the assembly of the Thessalonians. Jesus himself, when he dictates seven letters recorded for us in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, in our old English, it says of the church of Ephesus, right? Of the church of Smyrna, right? Or of the church in Pergamos, right? Every one of those cases, the original word was ecclesia, which means assembly. But that's just the singular form of the word. What about the plural? Churches. Turns out it's still the word ecclesia. So where it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 11, the seven churches which are in Asia, it's still ecclesia. So it means the seven assemblies in Asia. There's only one place in the entire New Testament where the word churches is used in our English that wasn't translated from the word ecclesia. And that's in Acts chapter 19 verse 37. Because in that verse, it was talking about a temple, not an assembly of Christians. But with that one exception, every time the English word church or churches is used in the New Testament, it's being translated from the Greek word ecclesia, which simply means assembly. There's an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes, which is the Greek translation of its original Hebrew title, Koheleth, which means one who addresses an assembly. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and began his book with the phrase, the words of the Koheleth, the son of David and king in Jerusalem. So in English, it should say the words of the one who addresses the assembly. But we kept the Greek title when it was translated into English and called it Ecclesiastes. So who's assembling, folks? Who makes up the assembly? People like Peter, who've accepted what they've been taught by the Father that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. People who build everything they are on the rock, who takes away their sin. People who've been stamped and sealed by the Holy Spirit, being reborn and adopted into the family of God. So are we perfectly clear about what the Holy Scriptures means when it says church in our English? It doesn't mean the building that people cram into on Sunday mornings. It doesn't mean a religious organization. It doesn't mean the Vatican. It doesn't mean Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Church of Christ, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, or any of that nonsense. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with what we would call worship services. All of that is man-made tradition. It's got nothing to do with what the Bible means when it uses the word ecclesia, translated into church in our Old English Bibles. But Josh, what about the singing of songs in our worship services? Well, the Bible does say make a joyful noise unto the Lord, but you can do that with someone or you can do it alone. You can do that on your way to work in your car on a Tuesday morning. You can do it in your bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, laying flat on your back, looking up at the ceiling or out the window. You can also do it with a group of people on a Sunday morning. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the Bible didn't say you had to. It just said make a joyful noise unto the Lord. In other places, it even gives wise suggestions concerning the accompaniment of instruments. But there's no biblical laws here, folks, and certainly nothing regulating or even suggesting what we today would call church or worship services. But Josh, what about the sermons? 
Well, the Bible does endorse the adhering to sound biblical teaching. Teaching is one of the many spiritual gifts that are given to select members of the assembly to bring it truth, sound doctrine, the reproof of sin, the encouragement of staying the course, and so on and so forth. But once again, the Bible is silent concerning the use of that gift in the sense that it doesn't say it has to be behind a pulpit on Sunday mornings. It can go there, but it doesn't have to. Someone with the gift of teaching can employ that gift to a small group of people at a restaurant or in a living room during an intimate conversation. No structure, no formalities, no ceremonies commanded. Now, sometimes people get mad at me for bringing all this stuff up, but don't get mad at me. Get mad at God for leaving a book out of the Bible that tells you what you want to hear. Is the Sunday morning worship service a bad thing? No, not necessarily. Just as washing your hands up to your elbows before you eat isn't a bad thing. But remember what happened? The Pharisees had turned that into religious tradition and made it law. And what did Jesus say to them about that? He told them, You teach the commandments of men as commandments of God, but you ignore the commandments of God to keep your traditions. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. Is that what we've done with Sunday mornings, folks? I don't know. Let's look at it. Was there anything wrong with washing your hands up to your elbows before you ate? No. So when did it become a bad thing? It became a bad thing when it was taught as the commandment of God and then replaced the real commandments of God. So think about this, folks. Using Jesus' own logic and Jesus' own words here. Is meeting together in a public building on Sunday mornings, singing songs before the Lord, and then quietly listening to a sermon. Is that a bad thing? No. But it can become a bad thing if doing that is being taught as a commandment of God and then replaces the real commandments of God. Are our 21st century churches doing that? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, admonishes us to assemble together whenever possible, wherever possible, with as many or as little as possible, and as often as possible. Do you assemble with fellow Christians in their homes throughout the week? Do you call them up on the phone? Do you meet with them in public for lunch or dinner in restaurants? Do you get together with them as often as possible? No, but I go to church every Sunday. Ah, read those verses carefully. You can't accomplish what those verses are talking about once a week. That's not enough. And you certainly can't accomplish it at a Sunday morning worship service. You can sing songs and make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and you can get some good teaching, but you can't fulfill Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 by going to Sunday morning worship services. You can't do it. And to say that you are is replacing the commandments of God with the commandments of man. Here's another example. The entire Bible from cover to cover says, read me, read me, read me. Jesus himself said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Do you abide in God's word? No, but I listen to my pastor every Sunday and he teaches from the word and I listen to sermons all week long. Really? That's great. That's commendable. But that's not abiding in God's word. You're listening to teaching and that's a good thing, but you don't know if that teaching is good teaching or bad teaching if you're not abiding in God's word. Jesus didn't say teaching would set you free or going to church would set you free. He said abiding in his word would set you free. If you're not abiding in God's word, but then say you are by attending worship services, then you're replacing the commandments of God with the commandments of man. Throughout the entire New Testament, when our English uses the word church or churches, the original Greek word used is ecclesia, which means assembly. And that's all it means. To say that it means something different is to take the truth of God's word and replace it with a lie. 
which if you're like me, you have to wonder if the word ecclesia means congregation or assembly, then why doesn't our English Bibles just say that? In John chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word, you dig out your concordance and look for the original Greek word that was used there, you'll find that it's logos, from which we get the word logo. What does the Greek word logos mean in English? It means word. So when it got translated from Greek to English, they put down word. Why didn't the English translators do the same with Ecclesia? If it means assembly, why didn't they just put assembly? When did English-speaking Christians start using the word church? And that question will lead you to the next burning question. Where in the world did the word church come from to begin with? Folks, I've been battling the world's view of what church is for many years. The world has their view, the Bible has its view, and I stick with the Bible's view. It's the assembly of those who belong to the family of God, period. Nothing about Sunday mornings or public buildings. And I've gotten a lot of grief for holding that view, even though it's biblical, but it wasn't until this week that I studied for this session that I learned that even the word church itself is more pagan than Christian. Folks, I was stunned. When I started trying to find out where the word church came from, it shocked me to discover that for the most part, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows what that word means or where it even came from. At best, we can trace back the usage of the word church and find out how it came into being through the transliteration of words from culture to culture. For example, my last name is Alam, A-L-L-E-M, but that's not an English translation of my family's original last name. It's a transliteration. Ages ago, it was Alamond, A-L-L-E-M-A-N-D. At some point, probably after Ellis Island, the and was dropped, and it just became Alam. And then after a long time in American culture, Alam became Alam. It turns out that's the same way you have to trace back the usage of the word church. And when you do that, you'll find out that there were pagan religions using the word church long before Christians ever began using it. The word church originates from the Greek word koriakon, K-U-R-I-A-K-O-N, which means the Lord's house. And the word Lord isn't used the same way that you and I would use the term, but it's Lord as in master, the master's house. It was a place of worship for any religion, not just Christianity. And the word koriakon was specifically used to define not the people who worshipped in that religion, but the place of worship itself, the building. No wonder we're so confused today. Well, how did Koryakon become church? Well, it went through several transliterations from language to language, just like my last name did. Check this out from Fawcett's Bible Dictionary. It says the word church is known in Scotland as Kirk, K-I-R-K, and in German as Kirch, K-I-R-C-H-E, and in the Netherlands as Kirk, K-E-R-K. When you see the German word Kirch, taken from the Greek word Koryakon, you can begin to pick up our English-sounding word church. English has many words that have come from the German language, but the original Greek words Koryakon and Ecclesia are not synonymous by any stretch of the imagination. And there is no justification of the use of the word church for Ecclesia, because Koryakon, Kirch, and church all meant simply a religious building. Christians originally didn't use buildings, which distinguished them from the pagans whose focus was on buildings, statues, rituals, ceremonies, and physical objects. But that changed in time, and especially after Christianity became the national religion of Rome. And when the language of Christianity entered into the lexicons of English-speaking people, 
the corruption had already taken its toll because by that time, there was a built-in bias in shifting the meaning of the word ecclesia from the people to a building. Because a building would more serve the purposes of a religious group with a built-in hierarchy. From its earliest usage, the English word church has been understood in pagan traditions long before Christians started using it, and then later in Roman Catholicism and now in this present day as a building. But never has the word church been demonstrated or justified from a biblical standpoint to represent the Greek word ecclesia. And yet, in our old English Bibles, every time the Greek word ecclesia was used, it was translated church. As a matter of fact, most, if not all, of our modern English translations still translated as church. Even the Amplified Bible, the New American Standard, and the ESV English Standard. In all my research, the only English Bibles that don't translate Ecclesia into church is the ISV, the International Standard Version. It translates it Congregation. The Darby Bible translates it Assembly. The World English Bible translates it Assembly. And the Young's Literal Translation translates it Assembly. Every other translation that's out there, folks, as great as they are, they still revert to translating Ecclesia into church. It's incredible. So let's back up a little bit and read what Jesus said to Peter using what he really said instead of the mistakes in English. After Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my Ecclesia. Your name means the piece of a rock, but on this complete, huge, massive rock, I will build my assembly. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, folks, here's another mistranslation. In most of your Bibles, it probably says hell, because that sounds awesome, doesn't it? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But that's not what he said. He said Hades. And if you'll remember, we talked about Hades when we did our session on John chapter 5. Hades is not hell as you or I would think of hell. When we think of hell, we think of Gehenna, the fiery furnace. But Hades is not Gehenna. Hades is where the spirits of the dead went before Jesus had died on the cross. It had two compartments. One side was a place of paradise for the faithful, such as Abraham and Moses. And the other side was a place of torment for the unfaithful. If that's new to you, check out our commentary on John chapter 5, and we go through it exhaustively. The point is, Hades is where both the faithful dead and the unfaithful dead went. But post-cross, only the unfaithful go to Hades. Why? Because the gates of Hades do not prevail against the assembly, which Jesus is introducing right here. Then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Folks, what in the world is all that about? Before we get into that, let's first address who it is that gets those keys. Is it just Peter? No, but anyone who believes and has made the statement of faith that Peter made. What are the keys? Jesus called them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do, folks? They lock and unlock things, right? That's why Jesus gets into binding and loosening, locking or unlocking. But what does that really mean? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Where it says, shall be, in our English, a more appropriate rendering in the English should have been, must be, instead of shall be. Because when you say shall be, that implies that it hasn't been done yet, but will be. But when you say must be, it puts a different spin on it. Whatever you lock on earth must be locked in heaven. In other words, it's already locked in heaven. 
That's the way the original Greek says it, and it's translated that way in the Young's literal translation and the Amplified Bible translation. Folks, are you starting to get the impression that what Jesus said to Peter must have been really important because almost every single word has been tampered with in translation from Greek to English? The original Greek is flawless, but we have to almost tiptoe through this thanks to the corruption into English, be it intentional or unintentional. Satan does not want English-speaking members of the assembly, that's you and me, to know what this says. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you lock on earth must already be locked in heaven. And whatever you unlock on earth must already be unlocked in heaven. Okay, to find out what we're locking and unlocking on the earth, what is it, folks? What is it that's already locked or unlocked in heaven? What's unlocked in heaven? The power of God, the truth of God, the word of God, the love of God. Go on down the list. What's locked in heaven? The power of Satan, the lies of Satan, the hatred of Satan. Go on down the list. According to one of the many notes found at blueletterbible.org for verse 19, I like what Chuck Smith said. He said, we have the power as the children of God to lock the forces of darkness and to unlock the work of God. God has given us that authority over these spirit forces, these spiritual entities, that as children of God, we do have authority over them. We can bind these spirit forces and we can loose the work of God. You unlock the work of God through prayer and you lock the work of Satan through commands in the name of Jesus Christ. Another way you can lock and unlock doors is laid out in Ephesians chapter 6. It's called the armor of God. Study that carefully. We've had a roundtable discussion on the armor of God in the past right here at Founding Word. If that's new to you, give that a listen. No wonder Satan has tampered with the translation of this text into English. Keep you imprisoned in a man-made tradition without ever knowing the truth and keep you confused and ignorant about the keys that Jesus himself gives to lock and unlock doors in the supernatural sphere. So now let's read everything that Jesus just said one last time, but with their appropriate rendering into English instead of the mess that we wound up with. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of the dove, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petros, the piece of the rock. And on this Petra, the whole massive rock, I will build my assembly. And the gates of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you lock on earth must be locked in heaven. And whatever you unlock on earth must be unlocked in heaven. And folks, we're going to leave it right there. Are you excited? We'll continue next time right where we left off. Until then, we're out of here. Take care. <laughs>